Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hello, welcome back to Wadsbiz. Great to have your company this afternoon for the next hour or so. This is a program we refer to as The Call. Uh, 10 stocks that you suggest we take a look at. I put them to our uh, expert panel for their adjudication. Uh, what a panel we have today. Chris Conway from Marcus today and Scott Phillips from Motley Fool. Uh, good afternoon to you, gents. Uh, Scott, have you kicked off the week well? Koshi, I have. Good afternoon, mate. We've had sunshine down here for two straight days. I think the first time since August or something. So it's a, right. it's a, it's a very good start to the week. Uh, yep. and of course, rates day today, it's, uh, it's all happening, mate. Yep, yeah, and the rain is coming back tomorrow, so don't get <laughs> it really used to is. it. How are you, Chris? <laughs> you well? Very well, thank you, Koshi, indeed. Market's okay. flying, so everyone's happy. Yeah, market's mm. flying, and Elon Musk has sort of said, I like tech stock, so everyone's following him back into it. Spot on. Uh, yeah, I know. It's sort of uh, a big night on markets overnight. Um, let's take a quick look at the stocks we're going to take a look at this half hour. Uh, Seek, Australian Strategic Materials, Ramsey Healthcare, Change Financial and Austal. So really good mixture there. Uh, I always kick it off with the stock of the day, something that's in the news. Thought we'd take a look at Alchem uh, after it provided an interim update on its Argentinian lithium project. It's now expecting a lithium carbonate production capacity. It's Buenos Aires um, uh, mine to be up by 40%, which is about 10% higher than its last estimate. Shares creeping into the green this morning, sitting around record highs on a day when lots of stocks are up. Um, so what do our experts think of Alchem? It's in a, uh, certainly a very hot area at the moment, anything to do with lithium. Um, Scott, what do you think of it? As it um, has lithium run too hard as a sector first up and then just hone in on Alcat? Uh, Koshi, I think the, it's really hard to actually separate those two questions, quite honestly, because the answer to the former is yes. Yeah. And when you have a sense of a commodity getting out of, what I'll say, out of control, because we have a different view and that'll make my life more fun. Uh, but when you've, got a, when you've got a commodity that runs what I think is too hot and takes everything with it, you almost can't say, but what about the company? Because we know that as a commodity producer, you can control your costs, you can control your operations, you can't control the price. And so whatever investors are thinking about the company, the commodity is going to dwarf it. It reminds me, and I don't want to draw a direct linkage here, but when the cannabis stocks were hot a couple of years ago, it didn't matter who you were or what you were doing, your share price went through the roof. And then, of course, as soon as cannabis comes off, there's nowhere to go, there's nowhere to hide because all that expectation, all that hot air goes away pretty quickly. Now, Lithium is not cannabis for a whole lot of different reasons. Uh, firstly, I wouldn't smoke it. But secondly, more importantly, it is a real product with real you know, legislative use. Um, there is an absolute use case for it. The challenge for investors right now is they're doing the, the, the quick two-step, which is more EVs, more batteries, therefore more lithium, therefore lithium companies are going to make a fortune. And that's a pretty easy straight line. 
The problem is, as we know, and as I've said before on the program, the oil price went up about two or two and a half fold over the 20th century and early into the 21st century, despite the fact the volume going up by literally millions of times in terms of yearly production. And you think about, hang on, if, if volume goes up that quickly, but price hardly goes up after inflation, this is, by more than two and a half times, it tells you what exactly happens when it comes to commodities, which is as soon as something gets hot and stays hot, plenty of other people come and join the party. Now, if you're a short-term trader, if you're a medium-term trader, and you can kind of work out or, or guesstimate where the right point to get in is and the right point to get out because you're going to get out while the uh, the bulls are running and before more supply comes on, there might be some money to be made, quite honestly. I don't claim to know. But if you're a long-term investor, you're looking at the history of literally almost every commodity. As, uh, you know, whatever there's more to be found, whatever economies of scale make that exploration and the actual mining process more cheap on a, or you know, more, more expensive on a per unit, whether that's ounces, tons, kilograms, depends on what commodity you're looking at, that remains the story. Oil has become much, much, much harder to find since the peak oil thesis of the 1970s. And yet the sheer volume of it and the improvements of technology has meant the oil price itself over any length of time hasn't moved that materially. Now, of course, there are you know, daily, weekly, monthly, even yearly uh, volatility. But if you look through that and look to the long term, there's not much there. So if you look at all chem, yes, lithium is going to be massive. We're going to have many, many, many more lithium batteries in 10 years time than we do today. I think we're going to have a lot more in the way of uh, usage, uh, EVs in particular, but even things like, for example, power storage. When we think about replacing carbon intensive grids, it'll be absolutely in demand. Do yeah. I think, though, that there won't be a time when the price falls. No, I think the price will fall in all likelihood, not a certainty. I wouldn't bet against it, but I absolutely would not bet on it. Okay. But it's producing rather than exploring. That yep. that puts it a bit further along the curve, do you reckon? Kind of. Um, yeah, yeah. So, uh, yes, absolutely. In terms, of, in terms of risk, at least they've got a commodity. They've found yeah. something. They're producing it. Those things, absolutely. The problem is if the, let's say the price falls by, I'm going to pick a number here. There's not a forecast. Let's say it falls by two thirds. Let's just pick a number. In that environment, no matter who you are, no matter what your costs are, no matter how much volume you put out, it's almost inevitable that your share price falls. Now, maybe I'm wrong. Maybe this is the base for lithium. Maybe it never goes lower than this. Maybe volume continues to rise and these guys make a fortune. Is it possible? Absolutely. There's always the exception that proves the rule. But uh, is it enough? I don't think so, mate, because even yeah. if they do continue to produce, the expectation the market has for price and profitability, I think is just way too overheated. Mm, okay. Uh, Chris? Well, what do you think? I saw, um, talking about the renewable and battery storage and things like that, I saw a great graph uh, out of the Financial Times, which for the first time ever in 2021, there was more electricity produced from renewables than coal, which uh, just shows you uh, the traction of, you know, wind and solar and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, absolutely, Koshi, and that's a big part of the reason why we've seen lithium prices and everything in that space to do with back battery technology and the like are really flying and, and people piling into it. Scott has really laid out beautifully uh, the arguments, uh, and I tend to agree with him for the most part. I will declare that we hold uh, Allchem, but very specifically hold it as a trade, uh, and even as I hold it as, as a trade right now, I'm asking myself the same questions about whether or not this is sustainable, uh, and whether or not prices can keep running. Now, Allchem in particular has just had a series of fantastic announcements. So they upgraded their price expectations and they also upgraded their uh, production expectations for both of their 
both of their assets at Olaroz and the one uh, that you were talking about there in Buenos Aires. So they've just had this great news flow and the share price has gone crazy. And let's not forget that it was only about a month ago I was trading at 10 bucks. Now it's trading at 14. So that is a, that is a huge move or close to 14. Or I think it was 14.20 today. Uh, but just pivoting back to that broader argument. So the thing right now is the expectation of demand for lithium is probably the highest it will ever be. But there is no shortage of lithium in the world. It's just a, sh a shortage of production. And like Scott said, that production will come in line because there'll be that many people out there incentivized by the prices they think they can achieve that you'll find more and more lithium production will come online more quickly than expected. And that supply and demand equation will balance out again, as Scott was talking about. So bottom line, I hold it as a trade right now. I'm probably looking at taking profits. And I agree with Scott in the long term that that, uh, that equilibrium will be found at some point. You know, prices can't remain this elevated for that long. There is no shortage of lithium in the world, just a shortage mm. of production. Okay, so take some profits and it's a trading stock rather than a long-term investment stock. All right, let's get stuck into the uh, stocks you want us to take a look at. And Layla wants to view Chris on Seek, the big uh, online job advertising website, dominates the market, captures about 90% of, uh, of online uh, job ads, not just here in Australia, but it also has platforms in Asia and Latin America. Um, skill shortage at the moment, huge job, job vacancies. You'd think that would be good for Seek? Is it? I think so, Koshi. Uh, their results in the first half and the outlook were probably the best of any of the tech, media, entertainment, telco companies uh, going around. Just looking forward, it's expected to be on double-digit uh, growth trajectory over the next few years. And there's been a lot of analysts recently talking about that it's on one of the cheapest multiples uh, it's been for quite some time now. Take into account the macro considerations you were just talking about. It will benefit from that tight labour market. Uh, and the higher than normal rates of churn, you know, the great resignation going on in the US, it's not quite the same thing here in Australia, but there is probably more turnover in the jobs market now than there has been uh, in the previous five or so years. Uh, and that will all benefit. The other thing that uh, Seek has done recently is they've moved away uh, from the traditional pricing model to a, a value-based pricing model. And I think there's still some benefits to flow from that. So. Uh, at the very least, the hold. Uh, the only thing that's holding me back from buying it is the, the share price isn't really doing much. And to be fair, hasn't done much for about the last 12 months. And that's quite sideways. So I would just like to see some uh, price action momentum before getting into this one. But I think fundamentally, uh, it looks quite good. Okay. Um, Scott? Yeah, can't disagree with almost anything Chris said there. It's it's been a really good story, and as you mentioned, Koshi, ninety percent of the of the jobs placed in Australia, you'd be mad not to use Seek, and that makes it just the absolute go-to portal. And hard to imagine something eventually may disrupt it or at least challenge it, but hard to understand what that might be given the lock Seek has on both sides of the market, uh, buyers and sellers of employment. When you think about the, the the multiple and the price, and to Chris's point, currently around fifty-four odd times earnings. But here's the over the last four years, earnings have gone from 63 cents to 51, 28, then eight cents per share. Now, on one hand, you say 54 times earnings, that feels like a lot. If they get halfway back to mm. the, the, the previous level of earnings, they're back on a PE under 20. And so it's really a question as you look through this, and look through is important because it's an Australian behemoth, of course, but it has a plenty of opportunity and plenty of growth, I, I you know, hope anyway, uh, plans overseas. And so you kind of, it's really, really hard to, to pair this one back as a sum of the parts job and say, what is each worth? What might each be worth? How could you see that coming? 
I prefer to look at it as a cash cow business. Seek themselves do basically. They've got their cash cow business. And they've got their growth businesses. Um, that's behind the change when Inarev took over, of course, uh, and Bassett stepped back to, to basically focus on the innovation part of the business. That's how to think about Seek. It's almost kind of one part employment website, one part uh, venture capital firm. Yeah. Obviously operating in a very specific and, and identical space in other markets. Um, I like it a lot. A really strong, high quality business. Again, because normally 50 times earnings, I'd be I'd be taking a walk. Um, but if you look at the, the path of those earnings, now, if this is a new level of sustainable earnings, by the way, it's still too expensive. But very unlikely, I think, particularly think about the jobs market here in Australia, the strength of that as it comes yeah. back, unlikely that earnings stay this low. And I wouldn't be at all surprised, Chris is looking for some price momentum. I wouldn't be at all surprised to see that happen sooner rather than later. If we get a couple of good jobs reports, if Seek puts up some strong numbers in terms of listings and and that revenue model, is, as he says, has changed meaningfully recently. And that's a good step, I agree. I, I wouldn't be surprised to see it happen. Now, I'm not a short-term trader. I'm not making short-term forecasts, uh, but I don't think it'll be earning eight cents a share for too much longer. Okay, so you have it as a buy? It's a hold for me hold. while you yep. wait to see as that comes through, uh, okay. but I think it doesn't take too much to look at that again in light of if they do deliver some of that growth, uh, it becomes a buy pretty quickly. So okay. hold for now, so watch out. Uh, but have a, have a finger over the button. Yeah. Okay. All right. Uh, Zoe wants to view uh, Scott on Australian tr strategic materials. Uh, it's uh, um, in the rare earths uh, business, mm. seen as a mine to manufacture a producer, they dub themselves. Mm. This is a fascinating area because there is so much happening in rare earths now. Uh, we talk about commodities a lot. I talk about commodities a lot, and you know my views yeah. on them, generally speaking. Rare earths is really interesting because you've got not only the kind of general commodities cycle going on, you've got a massive geopolitical shift. And we all know that, of course, it's obvious. But it's, it goes just deeper than Russia and Ukraine or even than America, China. Most specifically, uh, Joe Biden has already been talking about, President Biden in the US, and we're talking about securing uh, an American-based or a non-Chinese, effectively, based rare earth supply. I don't know if strategic minerals fits that bill specifically, but we are seeing more than just pure supply and demand happening right now. These are materials of significance and, and probably even national security. Um, I, I don't I overdo these descriptions very often. Um, I'm not a shareholder, by the way, don't any rare earths companies. But if you look at these guys, Linus, others besides, and you say, hey, is it likely that A, there's more of the news, and B, uh, if China decides to lock up, and China has the vast, vast majority, I don't know the numbers offhand, but it's a very, very large proportion of the world's rare earth supplies. If you're outside that and you've got some opportunity to supply the rest of the world, particularly, I'll say, the West with a capital W, um, we're back almost in Cold War terms, but it, from, a, from a mining manufacturing perspective, we're not far away from that. What I like also about the company's strategy is that uh, they call it mine to metal. They are trying to get right through the value chain. Now, that's risky because it means you have to do everything and try and do it all at a better or at least as good uh, level of efficiency, operational success as the competitors. There's a reason people specialize, right? They say, I'm good at mining, you're good at manufacturing. I'll do this, you do that. Together, we'll, have, we'll be better than doing it, trying to do it all myself. But if you can do it yourself, there is real opportunity there. I don't, I can't recommend it. It's only been for a short amount of time. It's loss-making business right now. So it's not one I'm ever going to recommend in the current form. Uh, but I do like the strategy and I do find the space mm. really interesting. There may well be a time if they can deliver some decent volumes over time. And if that strategic kind of geopolitical play continues to work, there is probably some latent value in, in this company, Linus, and others besides. Yeah, yeah. Um, Chris, what do you think? Because I know Dan Tian, the trade minister, was in the US not long ago and, and the US saying these mm -hmm. sorts of industries 
could be subject to, I forget what it's called, uh, the, the US Strategic Investment Program, that they, in terms of bringing it all under that Western wing and not letting it go. So that's an added advantage, I suppose. Yeah, certainly, Koshi, there's that push in the US because these materials are used in military applications and, of course, they don't want uh, that to, anything to do with certain countries that will remain nameless. Uh, just to Scott's point, China produces about 80 to 85% uh, of these critical metals that ASM is involved in. Uh, as well as the US uh, optionality, it's also worth noting that in uh, late last year, uh, South Korean President uh, Moon Jae-in came to Australia and spoke with uh, some of the heavyweights within this space, including uh, people from ASM, looking to secure supply. So South Korea has three of the biggest battery makers in the world and controls about a third of that mm. uh, of that market, that global electric vehicle market. So South Korea as well has become a dominant player and they're trying to shore up uh, production and make sure that they've got the inputs needed to continue producing in that space. So that's a potentially very valuable area for the company as well. Again, I agree with Scott's point about uh, their mine to metal strategy. I like the fact that they're trying to capture all of the value up and down the value train. Again, not easy, as Scott said, but if they can get it right and they can own that whole process, then, uh, you know, there's great potential. Because it's quite guys. a dirty, environmentally a dirty process, isn't it? Which is one of the issues. Yeah, and most of it's uh, not done here in Australia. I think there's one other company that uh, we might talk about a little bit later that is trying yeah. to build a plant here. Uh, but otherwise, most of it's done offshore. But just rounding it out, I agree with Scott. It lost $10 million last year. They've got about $57 million cash on the balance sheet. So they do have some uh, cash in the bank to keep growing things, but they're just not making any money yet. Uh, and once again, just looking at the chart, the share price hasn't done a great deal over the last uh, few months at the very least. So um, can't quite buy this one just yet, but I'm excited by the space. Mm, okay. All right. Uh, Chris Callum wants a view on Ramsey Healthcare. Ramsey Healthcare continues to stun me. Uh, every time we cover it, I look at the numbers, 77,000 staff, 480 facilities across 11 countries, hospital, day surgeries, treatment, rehabilitation, psychiatric units, Australia, UK, France, Indonesia, Malaysia and Italy. Wow, it's an amazing Australian success story, isn't it? It's huge. Yeah, it is. They've certainly got a bit on and fingers in many pies. And for the most part, they've done it pretty well uh, up until, of course, uh, the pandemic, which has yeah. derailed a lot of uh, healthcare companies. Uh, they are weighed down by higher costs. Uh, and there's also the problem about finding appropriate staff moving forward as well. So there's likely to be a shortage of uh, nurses globally in the second half and probably lingering into financial year 23. And that will continue to weigh on these guys. And the other thing that creates a lot of uncertainty. We know markets hate uncertainty. Uh, is that the the recovery and the the pace of the recovery? This is the recovery from the pandemic yeah. in certain and different geographies around the world. So, yeah, a lot of analysts have started trying to price this one based on FY24 forecasts because that's the period where most analysts think that things will be back to normal or whatever that normal looks like. Um, and just because of that uncertainty, you know, I, I can't buy this one. I do like healthcare. Generally, healthcare will do well uh, in the kind of macro conditions that we have at the moment uh, because of the inelasticity of uh, the demand. Uh, but uh, yeah, I just can't find a way Not to buy in this to. one. So it's no, nothing okay. more than a hold for me at this stage. Okay. Uh, what about, do you, can, do, you, do you put Ramsey Healthcare and Fisher and Paykel in the same barrel or are they 
different? No, I think slightly different just because Fisher and Paykel is a um, you know makes uh, it makes devices. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. And okay. and those companies have had their own problems uh, not being able to get into hospitals and show their wares. So um, yeah, difficult space to play yeah. at the moment. Uh, Scott Ramsey Healthcare. Yeah, I think that, look, the, the summary you gave at the top, Crush, was a really good one. They have been remarkably successful. And you kind of think about when a business gets big enough that I don't even imagine the people reporting to the CEO could name, you know, half the facilities off the top of their heads, right? And so it's kind of one of those businesses where it gets really, really big. Uh, by definition, the scale is enormous. The bureaucracy that needs to go with it is enormous. Um, and you can never have your finger at each one of those pies. The CEO could visit one facility every year, and, uh, every day, sorry, <laughs> and still not do it in a year. Uh, which is remarkable when you think about it. It's kind of the scale of, you know, Woolies supermarkets or, or others. We just have that much size, that much breadth. And again, consider the international component of that as well. And it does come down to, I think, how well you set the strategy at the top. It always does. But the smaller companies, the CEO is often the head salesperson or the head marketer or the head operations or, or whatever it is, depending on the organization. In Ramsey's case, again, the top couple of levels of the, of the C-suite at best are in charge of culture and kind of the really, really, really big capital decisions. Ramsey hasn't exactly thrilled the market and thrilled me with their recent capital allocation. The, the growth that we're used to seeing from Ramsey, and frankly, I thought we might see from Ramsey a little bit of a stronger case, just hasn't come through. It might be just simply a victim of being so incredibly big already that there's not much you can do to grow the pie. These, these facilities generally operate at or near capacity most of the time, again, pandemic aside. And during that period, you've got to kind of buy or build another one to get more growth. And so you don't necessarily get the same economies of scale you might when you're smaller, and you don't get the growth. If you've got 10 hospitals, you add another one, that's 10% more. As you're saying, mate, with 480 different hospitals, you can add 10 and it's really still not touch the sides. That's the big challenge for Ramsey is trying to find a way to grow from already gargantuan size. Trading on a P of 39 times on my numbers, if there's a bit of upside, a little bit like Seek, that profitability has fallen meaningfully from $3.18 a share three years ago to $2.02 last year. If you get back to that previous level, the PE comes down to 20-something, and that gets a little bit more attractive for it. It's obviously a really high-quality business. For many investors, the lack of, or, or the international expansion is great, but it also means the franking percentage tends to be at risk. Uh, the more ex international expansion, the fewer dollars are made in Australia. It's not a bad thing. More money is always more money, and if you don't get the franking credit, so be it. But it does mean it's got to do a little bit more than the average company at that kind of mid-20s PE to justify an investment dollar compared to say a, a Woolies or a Coles or a, a something else with, with massive franking credit bonus going with it. Um, I'm with Chris, it's a hold for me, really high quality business. I do wonder whether it's just simply too big to grow um, and whether the capital allocation has been good enough recently to suggest they can use that to really juice the lemon. Yeah, that's a really good point. Um, thanks for that, Scott. Uh, James wants a view, Scott, on change financial. I don't think this has ever come up on the call before. Uh, it was interesting, it's um, um, a, a platform, a, um, a software as a service banking platform, FinTech, yes. but associated with MasterCard. Yeah, so MasterCard processing specifically in banking as a service in general, as you mentioned, Koshi. I love these sorts of businesses. I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be able to go with um, with Change Financial yet. It's unfortunately done nothing but deliver losses thus far, oh. but it's trying to scale and we'll see whether it can do that sufficiently. Mm. But I love the idea of these platform businesses. So we saw for a really, really long time, businesses get bigger and bigger. Think about the big four banks, right? They, they took market share by being better, being cheaper. They bought a whole lot of other businesses, uh, St. George, Bank SA, Bank West, 
uh, Bank of Melbourne, plenty of others got got absorbed by the big guys. There's now four left. And while you got while you got bigger and as you grew, the scale was its own advantage. What we're seeing in financial services now is people who can give scale through really specific things, but across the entire sector. There's a business in the US called Upstart, and its job basically is it does credit approval and assessment on behalf of all these different types of banks, for example, right? And they simply say, well, we've got data from right across the banking sector in general, which is more than any one individual bank can have. We can do it using some AI that we've developed that you guys haven't done. And so all of a sudden, these middlemen that get pushed out as people grow because scale begets its own opportunities, then realize there are market-wide opportunities or tech specializations that, yes, the banks individually can try and work on, or you can simply outsource to somebody else. So I like the idea of Change Financial's banking as a service business. Um, There's been bank in a box type ideas for years. Now, whether there's enough market opportunity left for these guys to actually see this through is a really open question. Um, You know, Afterpay's done really, really well creating a new payment method, but they did that by going basically direct to consumers, direct to retailers, and around the banking system, rather than providing services to the system itself. So I I like this sort of area more broadly. I think there's a really good opportunity to find players in all sorts of industries that are bringing a, a tech solution to an entire industry and doing it better, faster, with more intelligence, i.e. the artificial intelligence, than the incumbents can bring, or than their individual silos let them do. You can't see other people's customers, obviously, for good reason. But Upstart, for example, in the US, as I said, is saying, well, hang on, we can tell you customers that you shouldn't lend to despite the fact the numbers look good, or more importantly, in some cases, where you don't pass the traditional metrics, but this sort of customer, because of all the data we have, is actually a really good risk. Non-traditional, now we've got to be careful with subprime, right? But non-traditional, mm. you normally say, well, I'll look at these five characteristics, roll them off the board. They're not going to be part of the story. You can now say, actually, you know what? Because of these specific circumstances and the amount of data we have, it changes the credit scores. Now, this is not change financial, as I said, but banking, banking as a service is a really, really good opportunity to go to a whole lot of small financial institutions and say, hey, we've got it here. We can do it for you. If they can yeah. convince them to do that, as I said, the losses are reducing, so that's positive. But, uh, and as I said, it's attractive. If they can crack the nut, there is big, big, big opportunity. So I'd watch this one carefully. But again, because it's making losses, because there's no real sense of how well it will scale, how big it could be, uh, just the opportunity, the, 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 the raw potential is there, but you want to see a bit more meat on the bones before you buy the mm. shares. Okay. Uh, Chris? Once again, a very uh, sound assessment from uh, Scott. So, yeah, these guys grew revenues last year by 76%, but their loss increased by 39%. They've only got 1.5 million cash on the books and they torched uh, 2.2 million last financial year. So maybe a capital raise uh, on the way. Mm. The agreement with MasterCard is a sound step in the right direction. It's a six-year agreement uh, and they can issue cards uh, and, uh, sorry, prepaid debit and credit cards uh, under the MasterCard logo. Uh, the problem that I have with this one is at the end of the day, it is essentially to me just another payment system. Uh, mm. And that is a hyper, hyper competitive space uh, where, like Scott said, you do need scale. You need significant scale to make it all work. Uh, and it just it seems like these guys have got a little bit too much money to um, further their operations uh, and they're not making enough progress quickly enough. And I think uh, I might humbly submit that that's uh, reflected in the share price because once yep. again, you know, it's been... Uh, probably a good two years and the share price has done next to nothing. So uh, they don't seem to be making uh, as much inroads as the market obviously would like to see. Sure. Okay. All right. Uh, Ian wants a view, Chris, on Austal, the uh, uh, the big Australian shipbuilder into ferries and, and 
defence um, navy ships and the whole lot. And Andrew Forrest bought what eight percent just a week ago in the uh, in the Perth-based shipbuilder. Yeah, unfortunately, what came before that, I think, was that they were notified by the um, the Philippines Navy that they didn't win a contract, mm. which, by all reports, they were well positioned to win. And that's seen a number of analysts downgrade their forecast uh, and then try and focus more on the U.S. opportunity. Uh, they were also thinking about a defence expansion in the Philippines and Vietnam, and that is now obviously under a cloud because they didn't win that contract. Uh, and it means that their margins will be uh, probably a little bit skinnier as well. Uh, so, yeah, not a good announcement in terms of losing that um, that contract from the Philippines Navy. Uh, a, a very tough business, a very tough business to operate in on the military side uh, and also uh, commercial vessels as well. Lots of competition around the world. Uh, again, a share price that is sub $2 and has been for quite some time. Uh, really would have liked to see them win that contract. The vote of confidence from Twiggy is good. Uh, but probably not enough to get things moving. We'd want to see more contract wins. Again, we want to see some uh, momentum in the share price, uh, and then I'd be more inclined to take a positive look at it, but nothing more than a hold at this stage, Koshi. Yeah, Scott, it's one of those businesses you've got to win. Uh, like the numbers yeah. are massive, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> if, you, if you get the contracts from the US or the Philippine Navy, it's huge mm. dollars. But if you don't, it's a lot to miss out on, isn't it? Yeah, and, and Chris has done. Uh, we're in furious disagreement through most of this program because Chris has nailed the, the the business case. And as you say, Koshi, this is the challenge, right? Is if if, there, if there's a very few very large contracts, then it is absolutely feast or famine time. It's a story of either you win the contract, you're a genius, you, you miss the contract, you're laying people off, you're delivering losses, um, a couple of losses in a row, and you start to think about the the you know putting the company itself in jeopardy. And I don't want to be too um, negative here or even predict that sort of stuff, but the simple reality is you're, it's a very, very tough business. Lay on top of that, by the way, the fact that to win these contracts, yes, you've got to be technically capable. You've got to be able to deliver the product on time and full. But you know what they're also looking for? They're looking for the best price. So not only are they all those things, they're big, they're infrequent, they're, the contracts themselves are risky. Then if you win the contract, you're probably doing it for cents on the dollar because if you don't do it cheap enough, that's how you lose the contract. And look, this is how capitalism is supposed to work, right? It's, 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 a, it's a feature, not a bug that the buyers get a good deal because the suppliers all compete with each other. When there's relatively little in the way of serious um, uh, differentiation across the providers, that, that's what you get. And the same is true of the construction industry. The same is true of um, civil engineering, for example. You get this is right across a lot of these things where you have these big contracts. Everybody wants. It's largely kind of a cost plusish type of operation. Austal uh, is a good business. They're doing a really good job. It's nice to see Twiggy throw some money in, and and that's always a vote of confidence because he's no no slouch, and he's not going to invest unless he really thinks there's an opportunity. If you take a geopolitical view, you might say, hey, more countries spending more money on military, in particular vessels, and maybe that's a, a tailwind. It probably is, quite honestly. Um, but here's the thing: if you're buying a company and you're a long-term investor, you're looking out two, three, five, seven, ten years and saying, hey. Why do I think these people were doing more business in that period of time than they are today? Because you want some sort of growth, right? Unless it's just cheap enough to say, hey, even if it doesn't grow, there's, there's value here. Um, you, you know, what what basis do I have to say I think Austin will do, you know, 15% more revenue and, and 10% more profit every year for the next 10 years? There is none because of the things you've just talked about. I will say in its defence, P of nine, uh, dividend yield of four percent. Now they aren't very demanding multiples. And this is one of those stories where if the share price has doubled in a couple of years, I won't be at all surprised. 
but it also could halve for exactly the same reasons. Yep. And that's why this is really, really tough, right? I get why Twiggy's looked at this and gone, hey, I've got a massive portfolio. I can add a tiny little bit of hostile to it, tiny in, in Twiggy language, not yes. tiny for the rest of us. Yep. But, you know, and if it does really well, then I'm a genius. If it doesn't do well, then, oh, who cares? It's, you know, a couple hundred million dollars down the drain, no big deal, um, which is nice, again, a nice problem to have. So, you know, they could, they could do really well. A couple of things go their way. The market gets a little bit excited. I can see how a P of 9 becomes a P of 20 without too much trouble. But I can also see how a P of 9 becomes a P of 12 on a profit that's halved, yeah. in which case you're actually still losing money. So you just need to be really, really careful with this one. Too rich for my blood, just too unpredictable. Um, I'm glad they're doing it. I'm glad there's some, some jobs. I'm glad there's some export dollars for the country. Uh, I don't, unfortunately, think it's worth investing yeah. in bit hard all right let's recap the first five stocks stock of the day all chem uh, a no from scott um chris is invested uh, in all chem but not as a long-term investor uh, investment as a trading stock and it's had a, a good pop-up he's actually thinking of taking some profits at these levels uh seek a hold from both the guys australian strategic materials uh like the business it's not far a um, along, not as far along the development stage, if you like, of making profits as the uh, the guys would like. So not at this moment, but keep watching it. Ramsey Healthcare, a hold at best. Uh, Change Financial, a no, and Austell, a no as well. Uh, also, a reminder of the calls uh, Fantasy High Conviction Fund, which is up and running. Let's have a look at how the portfolio stands at the moment. It's got. BHP, Macquarie, Minres, Steadfast, Aristocrat, Ordinate, CSL, NextEC and Universal and smaller investment in Qantas and Frontier Digital Ventures with 20% in cash. Uh, our fund is up a cumulative 2.67% uh, on a cumulative return since the 1st of March. Keep sending in all your crests to uh, the call here. This is the first filter to get through to the investment committee and find out what went in and what came out this afternoon when the next episode of the investment committee meeting goes live. That's from 4.15 p.m. Eastern only on Altsbiz. At CMC, we've been in the game for a while, and although a lot of things have changed, our mentality hasn't. We aim to give experienced traders the best trading experience, like our expert platform with its second-to-none trading tools, plus our pricing is completely transparent. That's why people who've been trading for a long time stay with us for a long time. So if you're serious about trading, switch to the market leader trusted for over 30 years. Trade CFDs your way at cmcmarkets.com. You don't own Underlying assets consider relevant PDS and TMD or information memorandum for CMC Pro accounts at our website. All right, let's take a look at uh, the stocks we're going to be covering this half hour. Cobram Estate, uh, Arafura Resources, Temple and Webster, State Gas and Polynovo. So first up, uh, Scott, uh, Ricky wants to be on Cobram Estate Olives, uh, Australia's, I think their biggest producer and marketer of uh, quality virgin olive oil exports to uh uh, 17 countries across a whole range of brands. What do you think of Cobram? So I love the idea of Australian agriculture. I love the idea of Australian agricultural exports. Uh, we all love to see a, a brand we know and trust. I'm a big brand guy too, right? You think Olives, uh, Cobram Estate is one of those names you're going to come up with, or at least if someone mentions it, you're going to say, yeah, I know those guys. I've either had them or will have them or, or should have them. Um, I think we've got some Cobram Estate olive oil in the, in the pantry, quite honestly, at home. So um, it, it is one of those one of those brands that, that means something and stands for something. Unfortunately, it's only got really short 
listed history and it made it's made a loss thus far. Uh, so it's hard to look at that and kind of take a lot of confidence from it. It's a business that I think as a, as a brand or a series of brands has a lot going for it. The challenge I think for most investors and for most companies of this size is I think they're probably just subscale. As a listed company, as a, as a single entity, if all you're doing is olives and olive oil, I'm sure it's a really big operation if you're running it, but in a relative sense, think about the likes of, say, Bega, for example. It has products across, I want to say, probably best part of a dozen, maybe eight or nine um, different categories. Massive business. You've got to be to compete with the local, to supply the likes of Woolies and Coles, who will take their pound of flesh and then some if you give them the chance. Um, export's great. I love to see us exporting just in general, but also it diversifies your customer base. It also generally means that if you've got a premium brand, you can generally get a pretty good price and pretty good margins from that export because you're competing not so much like for like with other Australian olive manufacturers or, or suppliers, but you're doing it overseas as part of brand Australia. And that does bring extra cachet and frankly, extra brand premium. So there's a lot of value there. But look, you know, this is one of those ones I just, you hope it's going to succeed. You'd like to see it succeed. Thus far with losses on the table and no clear sign that it deserves a place as a standalone listed company with that lack of scale that it has. Um, it feels like it's just a bridge too far. They're fighting uphill. I think, again, supplying Woolies and Coles, trying to get scale, trying to get export. As part of a bigger business, probably makes a whole lot of sense. And we add real value. I think someone like a Bega, for example, or somebody else. But again, with those losses and without a clear path to obvious profitability and frankly, a track record of that. Um, again, one of those businesses you like to like, uh, but I don't think it's one you want to buy just yet. Chris? Yeah, I'm intrigued by this one. Uh, just even in terms of the listing. So these guys did uh, what's known as a compliance listing. So that's when they take their existing securities uh, without making a, a public offer. Uh, and taking the uh, the compliance listing price of $2. And the comments from the CEO at the time was that they didn't really need the capital and they haven't spent any of that money. They just wanted to uh, um, reward the people that had been on the private shareholding for quite some time and then have that money in the bank uh, and use it for growth options. They have planted around 500 acres uh, in California this year and that project is fully funded. Uh, and Kosh, you might remember I was on the show last week talking about uh, the almond producer Select, yeah, Select Harvest, Harvest. And talking about the yep. fact that, yeah, exactly right. And there's just been uh, fairly recently some drought breaking rains in California. So uh, that might provide that growth option um, and some scale into the US that Scott was talking about. Again, it's very speculative, um, but an intriguing growth option nonetheless. Mm. Can't buy it right now. Agree with Scott with that, but I'm, I'm going to be watching this one closely. Uh, and if they get going in the US and those uh, plantations do well in California, uh, they might be able to get a bit of a stronger foothold in the US and grow its position over there as a major operator. So uh, yeah, I'll be watching closely to see if uh, it all comes to fruition uh, and the uh, share price starts to move in the right direction. Okay. All right, uh, Chris, David wants a view on another rare earths explorer, about to turn manufacturer uh, or miner, Arafura Resources. David says, Rare Earths Explorer, uh, underway to becoming a near-term producer of NDPR, which is neodymium prosodium, or however you, I just mumble it, uh, uh, at its Northern Territory located Nolan's Mine. Uh, share price to be seems on the, the march from a low base. Uh, thoughts on the future of producer of non-Chinese rare earths for EV genuine long-term miner and just got government funding um, 
through the federal government's modern manufacturing initiative to actually build that separation plan in Northern Territory. Chris, I think you were referring to that a bit earlier when we were talking about Australian strategic. Spot on, Koshi. And yeah, that government funding has seen the share price uh, jump from you know 20 cents in mid-March to now north of 40 cents. So it's had an absolutely cracking run. Um, specifically to David's question about whether these guys are going to need to constantly raise capital. The, the short answer to that question is yes. So they got $30 million uh, in that government grant. The project, the Nolans project, is a $91 million project. So 91 minus 30, they've still got to find 60 from somewhere. They've got 42 million cash in the bank. That was at December 31. Uh, and they, the company themselves have said that they're looking for about a billion dollars worth of investment to get this thing really up and running and cracking along. So they undoubtedly will have to raise capital. Um, just uh, pitching it against or comparing it to ASM that we were talking about earlier, these guys are even further behind the curve. I think they've got more to do in terms of, yeah. uh, in terms of growing and building out that process. So, uh, once again, you know, I probably would invest in a business at this stage of the cycle. Um, but again, some good things happening and and looking pretty good. But they undoubtedly will have to raise capital on the way. Yeah. Yeah, Scott. Yeah, I think that's a, a really good summary. We talked about rare earths before. I like the idea. Um, I love that someone's doing it. I think. Uh, as Chris mentioned, and you mentioned, Koshi, that money from the government just simply makes the path a little bit smoother. Uh, yes, more capital raisings. I was going to say, of course, I think it's almost certain. Um, so I think we'd probably say more raisings, of course. But that does help. That that money from the government does help to basically reduce the number that would have been required. Also, gives some sense to investors, I think, that someone in the government, now you, you can take your view on governments generally, they're either um, horrible bureaucracies or they know what they're doing. But either way, some money from the government says they've passed some tests to say we are worthy of this money there is something in the pike, either in terms of, or both maybe in terms of our, our close um, proximity to commercial production, but also on the flip side, that geopolitical question of who wants the rare earths, where are they, how do we secure them? Uh, we in that in the royal plural sense of Australia, uh, US, the West, that kind of stuff outside China, given that China may simply choose to change its mind about supply at any point, uh, and those are important minerals. So it's it's a it's an attractive place to go. Um, similarly, I, I think you know ten years of losses so far about to become uh, you know about to produce at what volume, at what price, at what cost, at what profit margin. You just can't know. And I just honestly think that a flyer on this one is exactly that. It's it's a speculative punt. Maybe you do okay. Maybe you don't. Maybe things go well. Uh, everyone wants the next Fortescue. This is not going to be it in all probability, but something's going to be at some point. And I'll look silly for saying no about that company when it comes up. Uh, but the dozens and dozens we have between now and then that simply won't become the next Fortescue, either don't get to production or if they do, don't get there in sufficient size, scale or profitability to justify the share price. That's the hard one. So no, I can't recommend this one. Um, leave it on the shelf. Again, anything getting towards production or getting to production, very well worth watching because you might yet see uh, those numbers come to fruition and that might be an opportunity. Yes, you're going to pay more than the current price if they do do it, but it's a whole lot less risky as well. So I'd be waiting for that. Yeah, it's sort of a, in these sort of stocks, for what you're both saying, it's almost a race along the scale, isn't it? You pick your yes. moment yeah. along the scale of development, how close uh, mining is or a production yeah. facility. Scott, is that, that's it, good companies, but it's in the timing mm -hmm. of your investment. I think that's right, Koshi, because the price matters, right? And I think there's, there's going to be some of these businesses that absolutely go on to be really successful companies 
But whether or not they're yeah. successful investments depends on can the company yeah. be successful? Big question mark. And then how much do you pay? And when do you pay that price? And those are really independently, they're incredibly big questions. Add them together. The degree of difficulty becomes Olympic diving standard because you're literally, yeah. well, let's let's assume our if you're at in 2048 starts mining and mines some really good volumes and then mines the next 45 years. Well, great, it's, it's done really, really well. Do you want to be investing in it now? Almost certainly not. If it starts producing good volumes at good margins in 2024, then you want to be investing now because they can deliver on, on the current share price and, and investors' expectation. Uh, but the timing it takes and the current price or the yeah. price you're being offered by the market is so dramatically important. And that's why I think for most of us who say, look, just too hard right now, it's yeah. because of those two things. It, it, yes, it's the company has to deliver and there's no guarantee. But even if it does, the price you pay is so dramatically important with these lost to profit companies where there's a lot of hype and expectation, right? If, and frankly, yeah. look, let's be honest, two rare earth questions, a couple of lithium questions in most of these programs most of the time tells you that investors are really excited about this stuff. If you're even slightly contrarian, that probably says, hey, everyone's excited about this. That increases the odds these yeah. things are possibly overpriced. Yeah. We'll talk about a couple of companies later where the reverse is true. Um, yeah. But for now, I think when you get that sort of scenario where everybody's talking about it, everybody's interested, everybody wants it, there's a very, very high chance that the, the share prices have that inflation in them, that sentiment that, that may increase the odds of doing badly as an investment, not a company, but as an investment from here. Yeah, and, and Chris, it reminds me of all the biotech stocks that we got about a year, 18 months ago, and it's exactly the same answer, is it? Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's just just yeah. around again. Absolutely. I mean, Scott's spot on. You know, those share prices depart from reality for when these stocks become market darlings, and we're seeing that with lithium and rare earths, and uh, yeah, even the fact that people are asking about them, like Scott said, yeah. means that uh, plenty of people are paying attention, yeah. and, and it's an overcrowded trade, and it will break at some point. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So, Chris, let's look at a company that was hot is no longer hot. Juanita wants to be on Temple of Webster, which was really hot during lockdowns, the big online retailer of furniture and homewares, come back down to earth a bit. Um, what do you think of Temple of Webster? So I like the business. I, I love their dropshipping model. It's the way that a lot of these businesses are going. You know, they've got a wealth of products out there and you know, wealth of supplies, and it's the, really just the marketplace and bringing them all together. Uh, their December half results were probably a little bit better than expected. 5% beat on uh, earnings. Uh, sales were up 46% year on year. Uh, customers were ultimately shopping more often and spending more. But we are ex-COVID now, ex-pandemic, ex-those tailwinds. Uh, and we also have higher costs and, uh, and you know, shipping costs coming uh, down the pike as well. So it's not surprising that the share price has fallen the way it has. You know, it's not a great environment, Kurt, for uh, discretionary spending, interest rates on the rise. Uh, and it was only in September that the share price was around $14, now trading just north of six. So uh, yeah, I cannot buy this one right at the moment. It will bottom out at some point, And that's the point at which I'll be looking to buy a quality business. But I don't think we're at the bottom yet. So yeah, can't mm. buy this one. Scott, do you think we're at Temple of Webster's at the bottom? <laughs> I have no idea, Koshi, I have to say. But I will, uh, for, for probably the first time in this program, take a different view to Chris. Um, and it just, it kind of comes down to how you see the future. And if you think about this in, we're talking about commodity terms, we've done most of the program. Uh, this is a producer. It's a producer with growing amounts of production. Uh, at the moment, the market's paying a lot for it, 90 times earnings. Uh, and the question really is, can the earnings match up, keep up? 
join up with the price expectation of investors. I'm, I, I tend to have a more, I give, I give a, an operating business more leeway than a commodity producer, largely because there's a sense of brand value. There's a sense of repeat purchase to some degree, not a huge amount with furniture, uh, but, but some repeat purchase and some ongoing existing business where you're not depleting a resource. Um, in fact, you're adding a resource, and as, as Chris already said, that dropship model is beautiful because you're kind of selling someone else's inventory for them, uh, but you also capture most of the upside because it's largely, it's not, not private label per se, but it's all non-branded stuff. Temple or Webster is the wholesaler and the retailer. They're not the manufacturer, but in this case, that's great because they get someone else to make it um, for a very, very good margin. The question for Temple and Webster is a pretty straightforward one for investors at least. Can it continue to grow quickly enough and for long enough? To, uh, to Chris's point, the price is down a lot. It's an interesting conversation because if you look at sales, sales per share have tripled in the last three years and the share price has halved in the last 12 or so months, or so less than that, six months. And if you combine those two thoughts, again, you either say the market was wrong then, it's wrong now, or maybe both. Maybe it was right then and right now for, for other reasons. Sentiment is the big driver here because there's nothing going wrong with that business at all over any extended period of time that justifies that share price fall. It is purely sentiment. Now, as I said, it might have been simply too expensive before, and that's fine because sentiment can go from hyperinflated to normal or, or realistic, and, and you don't necessarily buy just because the share price has fallen, nor should you avoid, avoid buying because share prices rise, by the way. They can be absolutely justified by the business's performance. I think Templar Webster has a pretty bright future. Mm -hmm. I, I think if you if you are able to extrapolate, you should never just directly extrapolate. But if you think about the sort of compound growth it may deliver in the next two, three, five, seven years, just on the basis that more of us are shopping online, Templar Webster making it super easy to do. The price points are pretty attractive. The furniture is in pretty high demand. If they can, and it's an if, but if they can keep that going, then the profitability kind of looks after itself, not entirely. Plenty of retailers have gone broke, even the popular ones. Mm -hmm. um, but my my suspicion is that the current management team, or if they can't do it, someone else will take the Templar Webster sales trajectory, sales momentum, and say, hey, can we make a buck out of this or can't we? They already are, by the way. They're profitable. But as I said, the P is pretty high. The market is betting that this growth continues and the profitability can continue to rise. I actually agree with the market in this case. It's a high risk for sure. Um, a lot can go wrong. The share price can halve again. It's going to be a P of 45. So let's be honest. This is no bargain. Uh, but if they can continue to grow sales and grow profit on the back of that, um, I think this is a good one. It's a buy for me. Okay. All right. Um, now, Charmaine, uh, Scott wants a view on State Gas, a Queensland gas exploration business with the Reeds Dome and Rolleston uh, West projects. Uh, Charmaine bought in in 2018 uh, when it listed. Not a very liquid stock, given the attraction of gas and uh uh, supply at present and the potential of this stocks. You never hear anything about it. No analyst covers it. Uh, what do you think Charmaine should do, Scott? It's it's tiny cost. You. I just I've just pulled up the numbers now. Sixty five odd million dollar oh, market cap small. business. So this this is a really tough one. Um, and if you look over any any extended period of time, it's a hard one to put a value on because they they are Australian explorers. This is lotto ticket stuff. Um, uh, Charmaine would have bought it for her own reasons and if she wants that sort of risk and, and potential reward in her portfolio that makes perfect sense the, the simple reality is if you if you're buying these guys without uh, you know uh, it, with even the best of intentions you mentioned biotech before Koshi there are some really really smart scientists trying to solve things like cancer and dementia mm. and arthritis and eventually someone will we desperately hope because it'd be great for society but there are so many smart people who will kind of 
I don't understand the pressing, see their life's work kind of amount to nothing because they can't ever quite crack yeah. the, the, the wonder drug, the wonder compound, the combination of treatments. Taken to the gas market, um, this is similar. There are some super smart geologists, right? They're, these are, This is not a, a flight of fancy. This is not a, a Harold mm. Lasseter wandering in through the WA desert trying to find some fabled gold reef. There is there is coal in the area. It's it, there is a There is a probability of some description. We don't know how much. They'll find some gas. Uh, will they find enough? Will it be commercial grade? The usual if, if, if questions that I ask in these sort of circumstances, we just don't know the answers to. It is unknowable, yeah. absolutely unknowable. Okay. Uh, we all know the same geology. The scientists who are doing this work, the geologists and others say, we think there's a chance. There probably yeah. is. Can you quantify the chance? No, you can't. So there is okay. no investment case for this one. It's pure lotto ticket. You might have a couple of flyers. If you want to fly on a biotech or a flyer on something else, a flyer on okay. a gas explorer is in the same kind of category. Uh, Chris, agree? I do agree. Uh, just to give, uh, sorry, who was the, uh, Charmaine, a Charmaine. little bit more of a positive spin. Yeah, so they're in the midst <laughs> of production testing uh, at both of their projects, and that will determine the speed with which they can reach uh, and if they can reach commercial production uh, and how much they will actually be able to produce. And their previous programs have established, established that they have very high uh, gas contents at some of their assets. So. Uh, you know, hopefully in the not too distant future, we're going to get a little bit more concrete evidence about the commercial viability of the assets that they have. Uh, and in the meantime, the gas price has been screaming higher in the background. So, yeah, hopefully Charmaine, at the very least, doesn't have to wait very long to get the answer okay. that she needs and wants. Mm -hmm. um, but like Scott, I can't buy this one. I just okay. don't buy companies at this stage of the cycle. All right. Need to um, uh, be reasonably quick on this one. Finn wants a view on Polynovo, the... Uh, medical device company that designs, develops and manufactures uh, dermal regeneration solutions. Uh, its product is Novasorb. Chris, it's like, um, it's like a mesh over, over wounds, isn't it? Traumatic wounds to help them heal. Yeah, absolutely. Helping burn victims and doing, and, yeah. uh, doing great, great work. Uh, just the business case. So these guys now are operating on a very thin margin of safety. Uh, they recently sold their headquarters down in Port Melbourne for, for $6.35 million. They're pumping $3 million uh, into, uh, into research and development and trying to keep things going. They only have $3.3 million cash, uh, and their cash burn is pretty high, and the market's a little bit worried about it. They did have some good results in February They saw and January saw monthly record sales, but they are, like I said, they're operating on the thinnest of margins here, and if mm -hmm. it all goes a bit pear-shaped, they'll probably be hitting up the market for some cash. Uh, and just I can't buy a business that's in that sort of financial shape. So there's a very quick summary. Yeah, Scott? Yep, Biotech Hopeful, love what they do. We all hope they're incredibly successful and then everyone uses this or something better. And the or something better is the challenge, right? So right now, this is one of the two. There's the spray-on skin product and there's this uh, mesh product, as you say, Koshi. These are the two market leaders. One of them may be the eventual winner. Maybe they both win, maybe neither of them win. And there's an even better product out there. Uh, for the sake of humanity, we hope whichever product is best wins this one. Uh, is it going to be this company? I don't know. Uh, it's just too hard to know. Share price down 75%, by the way, but also still on 200 times earnings. As Chris mentioned, it's probably going to need some more cash at some point. Um, just way, way, way too early. Great they've got a product. Great they've got sales. Great they've got some profits. So this is further along than, than for example, state gas that we just talked about. Again, swapping categories very quickly. Um, yeah. But 
you know, what does the future look like? No, we, you can't know. It's, it's literally unknowable. Um, at best, it's an educated speculation, and that's not an investment decision. That's just, you know, again, put it on red, put it on number five at the Greyhounds, put it on Polynova if you want. Um, <laughs> no, 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 no disrespect. No, no, go no. for it. But no, there's, no. There's, no, there's no basis for, for making it, it. Investment is, I have a reasonable understanding of the probability of a return. It's unknowable for Polynova. No, what you're getting into, I call it my TAB yep, money. Exactly. In my super fund, oh, there you go. You know, a little five percent of the fund in things that you like and hope do well, and but you know, yep, yep, it's totally. like putting on your money on the TAB. Um, always a delight to have you two on uh, on the call, Scott Phillips from Motley Fool. Thank you, sir, and uh, Chris Conway from Marcus today. Always great to have you aboard. Have a good rest of the week. Thanks, Thanks, Koji. Let's summarise the final five stocks and second half. Our Cobram a no, Arafura a no, Temple Webster a no from Chris, a yes from Scott. Believes in the business. It's well priced at the moment, according to Scott. State Gas a no, and Polynovo a no as well. Hey, if you've got any stocks you want us to uh, take a look at, whip them in an email to me at the call at osbiz.com.au or tweet us using the at TV handle. Uh, seal the stocks in the calls portfolio at osbiz.co forward slash portfolio. 